1 Corinthians chapter 8. We've been studying this letter here starting in the spring. The theme has been getting right and getting going. This church needed to get some things right and get some things going. So today, I'm going to start with two scenarios. Two scenarios, two stories to get our mind in what's happening. So scenario one is prideful knowledge. Scenario one is prideful knowledge. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're around somebody and what they knew was kind of prideful and it made you feel dumb, feel inferior, feel bad. I don't know if you've been in that scenario. This one, one that comes to my mind happened, I don't know now, four years back or so. My wife's family has a, has a house on Woodby Island, a vacation house that we go to. And they were having some remodeling done. And uh, everything had to be taken out of the living area because they were having a new floor put in. And so even the oven was out in the garage so that new flooring could go in. So we were there on a weekend, I think, a week, I don't know what, with her parents and her sister. We kind of pack a bunch of families into this place. And the oven was brought back in. And we were going to, you know, so we could cook all weekend. We cooked together and eat together. And we couldn't get the oven to turn on. The burners were turning on, but not the oven. And this is not a new oven. There's nothing digital, right? It's knobs. You may know about those. No digital buttons. You guys got those anywhere still? There's actually less to break on those. So uh, this is all a knobbed oven. So the, the, it's electric. The, the, the burners came on on the range top, but the oven wouldn't turn on. We thought, you know, it must have just got damaged going from the house to the garage, back to the house. We jiggled something. It's old. Uh, so we tried it. I tried it. My father-in-law tried it. My brother-in-law tried it, who is a super-duper engineer and understands everything. And we, nobody could get it going. So we were like, well, they called an island repairman. And he came. Which, if you know anything about islands and response of workers, them coming is actually kind of a big, big deal. That whole thing about island time is actually real. Like, island time? I started the weekend on Wednesday. I'm not coming out till Monday. But... So they get a repair guy to come out, an appliance repair guy, and it's a weekend, and so there's this huge fee. He walks in, he kind of looks at it, looks at it, he reaches the oven knob, pulls it off, turns it over, puts it back on, and turns the oven on. And we're like, oh, somehow the knob was backwards, and it didn't allow it to turn on. And, and, um, and he, so there's this like, what do we do? And the guy's like... That's 250 bucks. And he just had this kind of like, yeah, that's what happens. You guys are dumb. Uh, (laughs) And we felt dumb. Like, that's what it was. We couldn't see that the knob was on backwards. How did we not turn it on, you know? And I was kind of thinking, be like, oh, no, big, oh, this happens all the time. No big deal. I'm not going to charge you guys. Nope, nope. Full charge. Just kind of strolled out of there. And we were all kind of (sighs) like, he knew what he was doing. And we felt dumb. He had knowledge. And it was prideful knowledge. It was a knowledge that made everybody else feel like they just didn't know anything. Have you ever been in those situations? You know, I don't know, maybe at a car shop or something where they're explaining something and you're just like, I don't know what's happening. I feel very dumb right now. I feel that. So that's, that's scenario one, prideful knowledge. That someone could have knowledge, someone could know how something works, but they can use it in such a way that you feel bad, that is damaging to you. All right, the second one, second scenario we're going to see is loving sacrifice. 
I want that, this scenario in our mind. And so this one came, not, not this last Friday, the Friday before at the return of high school football with fans. So my, my oldest son is a 15-year-old. He goes to Squalicum High School, and he loves to go to the high school football games. He loves it. He knows what's happening. He's right on top of it. He loves football. And so last year they had a spring season, but no fans could go. So this fall he was so excited. He's a sophomore, and he's in the life skills class at Squalicum. So it's a class for people with all various kind of special needs. And so he's in this class, and they're talking about the game. It's the first game for Squalicum at Civic Field. And they're going to have a tailgate party for the freshman and sophomore. So they've roped off an area in the parking lot, and the freshman and sophomore can come at 7 for this tailgate party. And then the game kicked off at 8. It was a late game because... Bellingham had a game at five, so they were the second game. So, um, so he's so excited. He is so excited to go to this game. And the teachers let us know in this class. I mean, there's maybe, I don't know if there's even 20 kids in his class. Maybe 20 kids, two teachers, five or six adult aides that help in his class. So they said, if, you, if your student in life skills wants to come to the tailgate party, we will be there to support them. And you can just drop him off. So we come, and I roll into the stadium with Caden. I'm going to drop him off at the tailgate party. They're going to have pizza and music and all this. And I walk in, and this area is roped in, and it's just like packed with kids. And then there's this weird smell in the air. Not the weird smell you're thinking. It's a weird smell of this hairspray stuff that turns your hair other colors. I mean, this stuff is like a cloud just being sprayed on everybody's head. And, and so I see Caden's teacher in this mob, you know, and she's got like a pink stripe here and some green here because she's, she's letting the kids spray this temporary hairspray on it. So Caden is so excited. He goes in there, and I just watched. This is an adult with her own family on a Friday night in there supporting life skill. This is not on the clock. She's not getting paid. She just said, I will come and I will take and I will let you, these students with special needs who probably otherwise wouldn't go to the game and she's getting her head sprayed pink and it's chaos. She even picked up a student that their parent couldn't get them there and she's just in there with them and they had the best time. And then we go to the game at eight and she said, oh, the kids will just sit with me. So she had all the kids in the student section, sitting with her and a couple of the other adults. And I just thought, that is loving sacrifice. She could be anywhere on a Friday night. She's already spent all day. This is not an easy classroom to teach. This is not, there's going to be a lot of challenge behaviors and needs. And they're like, we will support your kids at this game. And it was just beautiful. And Caden loved it. He just loved it. And I just thought, that's what loving sacrifice looks like. She said, I want these kids to be there. I want them to have a good time. I'm willing to give my Friday night up to do it. And it was beautiful. And it made us feel part of a community. It made us feel cared for. Good thing I put these here. (laughs) So, aren't those two different stories? One story, somebody's knowledge, he did help us. Right, He fixed the oven. Right, We, We got it on. And we felt worse for having it done, right? We felt bad about it. We felt defeated. Another person lovingly sacrifices to allow our student to be at this game, and we felt cared for. We felt encouraged. We felt a part of things. It's not very different scenarios. 
And that's the mindset. I want us to keep these two stories in our minds as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There's a different prideful knowledge and loving sacrifice. So here's our, our point today. It is a little math problem, a little math formula. So love is greater than, that little sign, if you don't remember math, the alligator mouth eats the bigger one. You with me, right? You remember greater than and less than? We with me? Kaylee's with me. All right. You, parents have taught her well. So love is greater than knowledge. All right. The big part goes to the better thing, the bigger thing. Love is greater than knowledge plus sacrifice is greater than freedom. That's what we're going to see in chapter 8, that love is greater than knowledge. I just explained that in that story. The loving attitude of the teacher was much greater than the arrogant attitude of the knowledgeable repairman. And sacrifice is greater than freedom, that our teacher could have had her own Friday night with her family, and she sacrificed for a bunch of kids. So there's our scenario. Let's read chapter 8 together. Let's read chapter 8. Okay. It says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no one God, sorry, no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God and Father, from whom are all things and for whom are we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So there's our text today. Let's just get the scenario. You're probably going, wait, how did we get to this food offered to idols? What in the world does that have to do with anything? What is even that? So we've got to have a little work to understand the context. But Paul is sort of answering their questions. We saw that in chapter 7, verse 1. They had questions about marriage. Now in 8, so he, they've re he's received a letter from them. And he's sort of going through it. Okay, answered the marriage questions. Okay, now the idol, food offered to idol question. So what's going on? If you think this is only something from the ancient world, it actually isn't. There's a little uh, place that I like to go. Eric's gone there with me many times uh, for pho. 
spelled P-H-O, pho, is how you pronounce it. I was instructed by someone who actually knows this language. It's Vietnamese soup. It's delicious, but you go into this place, pho, and um, they got a little like Buddha guy under the thing. And there's a little offering and food and whatever's happening in that business, I think that Buddha is being invoked to bless it. And so this is not just some, well, they did this way back in the days and we never see this. Oh, no, it's still in our culture. So don't, don't just dismiss it offhand. But what we figured out is so what's going on in this culture, it's, it's a Greek culture. We're in Corinth. The place is filled with temples everywhere. Right? All the Greek gods and Roman gods and the pantheon of gods, the ruins in Corinth. And there's these temples everywhere. To all, I don't know what they all are. Zeus and Athena and whatever ones, Apollo and all the different names. So here's what was happening. Multiple things. All these temples had priests. They had sacrifices. So they would sacrifice meat. Some of the meat was given to the priests to eat, which is same with the Jewish law. But there was more. So some could be sold in the marketplace. The other thing that would happen is just people who were doing business, meat vendors, meat shops, would invoke the blessings of their gods before they sold the food. So there was the food had been, you know, asking for this deity to bless this business. Then another thing they've discovered in some of these temple ruins, they found lots of side rooms. And it's almost like when you go to a restaurant and there's the main dining room, and then there's a side room, like a party room or a family room. You ever been to a restaurant like that and you've reserved the family room? You're going to have a, a large gathering or you're going to have a business lunch. They found these in the temples. And what they think that happened is people would do meetings there. So you do your business lunch. We're going to go over here and all the accountants in town. We're going to have the business lunch. or We're going to have the idol sacrifice lamb chops. And we're just going to do this thing. It was part of the cultural flavor was that you would meet in these and the food served had been used in ritual offering to the whatever deity you were in. And the idea was that deity is present in the meal. That deity is bringing whatever blessing, power, whatever that one believed to be. So so that's what's happening. That's normal in the Corinthian culture to have food either purchased that had been blessed to a God or to actually be in the temple in one of these meeting rooms having, having a, a community meal or a business lunch. or that, That's normal in their culture. So these ones come to Christ and they're like, well, we're, we know Jesus is real. We know he's the one true God. We know whatever's going on at Zeus's temple. We don't really care about that, but they've got great ribs. So that's where we're going, Okay. That's, I'm being a little bit silly, but that's the idea. So some say, can we still do that? We've turned to Christ. We don't believe anything about these idols or their power, anything about these gods, but can we still eat there? And some are like, sure, of course we can. And others are like, I don't know. You know, my mom took me there since I was six. I'm not comfortable with, that's the scenario. Okay. That's the, that's the background to it. They're wondering, can we still participate? Can we still eat that food? Is that food bad? Is it tainted? That's the, that's the backdrop going on. And it's normal in their culture to have temples and idols and food, all this going on. So let's do point number one, that love is greater than knowledge. Love is greater than knowledge. So if we look in verse one, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that 
all of us possess knowledge. I think that's in quotes because I think that's probably what they wrote to him. Like, we all possess the knowledge that there's no real Zeus guy, and so we don't have to worry about the food they're serving. Right? That's, that's the thinking. He says, so he's saying, now we know that. We know we possess knowledge, but this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And my little story, the knowledge of the repairman puffed him up. He was proud. We were dumb. 250 bucks later, we're sad. We still got to make brownies, but we're sad, right? That's the deal. So love, knowledge puffs up. And that's what he's saying in regard to this. Think of it, some of the pictures are helpful. Think of it in terms of the difference between a bouncy castle. It's full of air, right? If you're like, I'm going to live in this bouncy castle, it's going to blow away, it's going to pop, right? That's a, that's a toy. That's not a house. Knowledge puffs up. It's inflated. Where he says love builds up, it's a structure. It's a building, right? It has, it could, you could live in it. It can withstand storms. This castle's probably been up for centuries. I don't know what castle it is, but do you see the difference, right? Love, knowledge puffs up. It builds me up. I know more than you. I'm better than you. Look at you silly people who are still worried about these temple meals. I just know it's a bunch of food and a bunch of weird rituals. There was this sense because the knowledge is about me. I know more. I know better. I can access this. And if people think differently, they're kind of silly. You see that idea. Versus love, I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about the community. I'm concerned about the people in my church. I'm concerned about our impact. And so I'm looking to build a whole church, build a whole structure, worry about a wider group than myself. So love builds up. Love is other-focused. Love is worried about how is the other person doing. Knowledge can often be used for my own. I'm smarter. I know better. I can do what I want. So that's where we're getting here. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge is inflated. Knowledge can be self-focused where love is other-focused. Verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. He's like, just be careful with how much you think you know. Be careful with how wise you think you are. He's like, "There's, there's more to know. But, now look at the contrast. If anyone loves God, this is one of these places where you're like, he didn't answer this right. Wouldn't you think if anyone... Thinks he knows, he doesn't know as he ought, but if anyone loves God, then he knows God. But that's not what it says, does it? It feels like it's the wrong ending to the sentence. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God, which actually is much better, right, to have God know you. So it's this contrast is going on here that knowledge, you think you can know and you can answer you know, Bible Jeopardy questions, and you know how the world really works, and there's a good thing to learning and growing and knowing, but he's saying, you know, you don't even know it yet. If you think you know it all, you don't. But if you love God, if you love him with your heart and soul and mind and strength, if he's the most important thing, and I want to know him, and I want to serve him, and I want to be around him, it says then actually the better thing happens, God knows you. God knows you, and he knows who you are, and it actually in the end, increases your knowledge, but it also deepens your love for him and one another. So Paul's, before he even answers the question, can a Christian eat food sacrificed to an idol? He just says, let's just lay this on the table. Your knowledge about how the world works can puff you up, can make you think you know, and can be damaging to the community. But when you love, and you love God, he knows you, 
and it's going to build this community. It's going to build a church family. It's going to build a structure. So he just puts that right on the table. So we're still under the heading <clears throat> that lo- uh, love is greater than knowledge. So verse 4. So therefore, he's, he's going to answer the question. He's like, all right, all that being said, I'll answer your question. <clears throat> therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, and again, these are quoted. So I think he's, he's affirming their, their requests. We know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. He's like, we know that there's not some Zeus going to come down and do some stuff. He's like, we know that's not going on. And it says, for although there may be many so-called gods in heaven and are on earth, right? They have all these names and all these temples. He's like, yeah, they're all around. We know their names. We can see their temples out our window. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul affirms immediately, I know they're there. We know this. We know there's these temples we know there's these names we know there's so-called gods but we worship the one true god who is father son he's the spirit is not listed here but we see that christ is also the co-creator right through whom we exist so he's saying we know that to be true we know that's true and we know that whatever the names are whatever these so-called gods are that's not important we know there's one true god now this could get us a little off track it doesn't mean there aren't spiritual realities. It doesn't mean there aren't forces of evil when he's saying this. If you jump just a, just a page later, uh, we didn't go to all these. Here we go. If you just jump over to chapter 10, Paul's doing a similar conversation. He's not saying there's not evil beings. He's not saying there's not evil that use these temples. It's not what he's saying. So if you just look over, he's doing a similar topic in 1014. He says, therefore, my beloved, this is flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many, we who are many are one body, for we are all partakers of the one bread. So he's pointing to Christ. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants at the altar? What do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what the pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So the point isn't there's no evil spiritual realities. The point isn't God's alone in the heavens and there's nothing else happening out there. The scriptures are full of a very clear and robust picture of evil forces. But what he's saying back here in chapter 8 is, it's not this one-to-one chord. There's not some Zeus. There's whatever is evil behind that, he's like, it's there. It's evil. They're using these things to enslave people. But he's saying the idea that if I go in there and eat some meat... Zeus is going to show up. He's like, we know that's not going on. He said, I don't want you doing the sacrifices. I don't want you participating in that because there are evil things behind it. But on earth, we know that's, there's not a one-to-one correspondence there. That's kind of what he's getting at. He's like, we know this. We know this is happening. I'm not saying, so he says, there are many lords and many gods and many names. There's spiritual realities. But we know there is the most high God. We know there is one creator God. We know there is one resurrected son, Jesus Christ, who reigns over all. We know this. All right, so that's what he's saying. Verse 7, 
However, not all possess this knowledge. This is where we switch from love is greater than knowledge. Not all possess this knowledge. We know there's one God. We know these demons don't, or these names don't really correspond to anything we need to worry about. But he says, but some, through former association with idols, they grew up in this, they were raised in this, uh, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Like some people go to the lunch meeting, and they think Apollos is right there, or they, whatever, the, I don't know all that stuff. But they're like, this is happening. We just ate this food. This ritual is happening. And so he's saying this possibility exists that you go in there with your knowledge about how it really works and who God really is. And let's say a new believer comes in there whose grandma took him there his whole life. And he's like, this is crazy. I can't believe I know Jesus and we're going to go eat this temple food. And so his conscience is weak. He's concerned about all this. He doesn't know all the ins and outs. He's new. Verse 8. He's saying, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. He's like, food's not the point here. The food doesn't bring you closer to God or not. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. It's not just about what you know, right? It's about others. It's not just about you knowing what the temple's really about. It's like your actions there could harm somebody who doesn't know yet, who's new. Verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. What's really at stake is the, new, the believer goes in there, does their thing, it's no big deal. The, the newer person, the weaker one in their faith sees it. And it's, it's not that they see you eat the meat. I think is what they see is there's a possibility for syncretism. You ever heard this word? The idea you go, oh, I have Jesus, and I have Zeus, and I have Athena, and I, you just add him in. Jesus is just one more among the gods. And they go back to their old way of thinking. Or they think, well, all these Christians are eating here. Maybe there really isn't anything to this Jesus. I'm just going to go back to what I used to believe. The possibility exists is that you could crush somebody's faith. You could confuse their faith. You could unite Jesus and other deities and other worships all because you really like their steak. He's like, you know it's different. You know it's not going to hurt your faith. You know eating that food doesn't mean this deity shows up. But that guy doesn't. And you're going there could ruin their faith. It could ruin their conscience. It could ruin their heart. It could make them feel like they did something very terrible. That's the setting. So that's why he's saying love is greater than knowledge. You can know there's no big deal eating that food. You can know nothing's going to happen to you in that temple. You can know it won't bother you in any way. But if somebody else doesn't know that, you don't want to go there because you love them and you care for them. And your knowledge about the truth of the situation is not more important than another person. Your love for them is more important than that. So that's the first scenario. All right? He's saying love builds up. Let me, let's let this play out and get my other formula in here. That sacrifice is greater than freedom. Sacrifice is greater than freedom. Look back in verse 9. But take care. This is the, this is the imperative in this whole chapter. Compare, this is the command. right? That's, this is when he switches from just regular verbs to you must. It's a little bit soft in English, but it's an imperative. It's a command. You must pay attention. You must notice. 
It's not if I happen to notice or if you find out someone's struggling with this. You must notice. You must pay attention. That's what he's saying. You must pay attention that this right, this authority, that's the actual word. Your authority to eat where you want to eat because you know the one true God. He says you need to be careful that your rights, your authority does not somehow become a stumbling block. Something that hurts another person. Something that strikes them is the word. Something that hits them. Something that makes them fall. That's, that's what he's saying. We don't want to do anything to trip somebody else. It's not a suggestion. He said you must pay attention. You must not cause someone to fall. Be, take care. This does not become a stumbling block. This is fights our Americanness, right? We're like, well, it's a free country. I do what I want to do. Right? You've been saying that since you're four years old, right? I can do what I want to do on this sidewalk. In Christ, we're actually one. And we are concerned about someone else, even if someone else lacks knowledge. Like, don't you know? It doesn't matter if you eat that food. Don't you know? They don't know. So you don't want to crush them with your knowledge, and you don't want to ruin their faith with your knowledge, and you don't want to use your freedom, your authority, to hurt them. And this exists in our culture in other ways. Um, I have a son with a peanut allergy. Not a severe one, but enough where we got the EpiPen, you know, and the, and the allergist doctor scolds us every time that we're not as good about carrying it everywhere. Like, well, he never needs it. She's like, yeah, you don't need it until you need it. Yeah, good point. So he goes to public school. A letter comes home from his class. We have a student in our class. They don't say his name. It was a peanut allergy. Let's care about this student. Let's be careful what treats you bring. Let's be careful what you bring to lunch, right? It's just the class. Everyone could say it's my right to eat a big, slathered, crunchy peanut butter, which is the correct peanut butter, crunchy peanut butter sandwich. Uh, but I don't want to kill my classmate, right? I don't want to see him having an episode on the floor, so I'll switch to almond butter, which is not nearly as good, but gets the job done. You with me? Our culture, there's places in our culture where we say, this person's weakness, for whatever reason, however it got there, genetic, whatever, I will lay down my right to eat some peanut butter so I don't hurt him. And that's the principle. Paul's saying you can know everything about the truth of God. You can know everything about whatever's going on in these temples isn't going to hurt you, and nothing about that meat's going to harm you. But if someone else doesn't, and they're still new in the faith, you don't want what you know to hurt their faith, even though it's your right and your freedom. That's where the sacrifice comes in. Look at verse 11. It says, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Oh, it's not just some other guy that goes to my church, some other lady that I sat next to. This is a blood-bought sister or brother. So there is a bonding. There is a, a oneness. It's not just me and my faith and me and Jesus. He put together a family. He put together a community. We are bonded to each other. We do need to know one another, and we need to know if what we're doing that could be completely true, right, and free, but if it destroys another brother or sister, I'm just not going to do that. I'm just not going to do that. Verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Oh, this is heavy, right? This isn't just, you know, it's not a good idea to go there. He's like, you must not. Because if you harm them, you're not just harming a person, you're harming 
Christ who called that person, who paid for them, and now you're messing up their faith. Not just their lunch menu, their faith. Verse 13, therefore, this is his end result. If food makes my brother stumble, I will, this verse makes me cry, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, we're not just talking about vegetarianism, right? This is specifically food that was in the idol's temple or offered. But this, you don't get it in English again. This is the strongest form of a negative sentence that that can be in in the Greek. This is the strongest form. Greek has double negative. It actually adds power. In English, it, if you say, I will not not do it, you actually like take away the negative. In Greek, it like pumps it up. So this is literally, he says, I will never, ever, it's, really, it's literally into the eternity. I will never, ever, for the rest of my life, eat meat. Isn't that amazing? He's saying, I, and, and who knows more than Paul, right? He's the smartest guy. He's written half our New Testament. Like this guy knows. He says, if I know that by my freedom... And my knowledge, I did one meal that would cause a blood-bought sister or brother in Christ to fall. I will never eat it again for the rest of my life. He's not just saying I might kind of not try to do it. He's like, I will never, ever into eternity eat that again because I care about them so much. Because sacrifice is greater than freedom. Because Christ loves them and has paid for them and we're one and it's not just about me and my growth it's about us and our growth it's about i'm bonded to these people because of christ we're bonded to one another and so love i'd rather love them than no more i would rather sacrifice for them than exercise my rights so what are what are examples like this whole scenario you're like is this ever going to happen in my life Unlikely, and I don't know of any temple you're going to go to. Maybe you'll go to the pho place, um, and and perhaps you go there, and someone's got a Buddhist pass, and they're like, "I can't eat here with this." And you're like, "Let's go next door because the the New Mexico tamale place is amazing, giving them some free love." So, anyways, it's right next door, and I did not see any artifacts in there. Did you? No, no artifacts. So, what are some real examples? I just came up with some. Uh, what if you knew someone came out of a witchcraft background? Maybe I won't do the giant Halloween party with witches, right? You just say, you know, I'm just not going to do that because that's their reality and their mom abused them and you just like, I'm not going to do that. Maybe some people have come out of a violent past. You're like, you know, there's some movies I'm just not going to watch with them. I'm not going to take them to. I'm not going to go to because it's the violent nature could do harm. Or maybe it's, you know, I'm working with students. You're like, yeah, I'm not just not going to take them to see that movie. It's just going to mess them up. I'm not going to do that. Uh, maybe some of you on the job site are free to use different language. And you get around somebody and they're like, that language is offensive to me. Like, well, I can say what I want if I smash my finger. Yeah, but you care about them. So you're like, I'm going to change my language. Some it's alcohol. Maybe some, some of you are completely free to partake in settings, but you know someone's coming that struggled in the past. You're like, I'm just not going to do that. I'm, not saying, I'm, I'm just not saying forever. You're just saying in this setting, I don't want to harm someone that's come from that past. Those are just some ones. I, they could be a million things. It could be anything. The thing is that we begin to know one another, and you know, that's their past. That's their background. And even though it's not mine and I'm free, I will say no to myself. I will turn off my freedoms and my rights for them because 
love is greater than sacrifice, or love is greater than knowledge. Even if you know better and know those things won't hurt you and know they don't matter and know it's all pretend or whatever, it's sensitive for them, or they don't know that yet. And your sacrifice of your rights is greater than your freedom for your rights. Because that is, here's the, some of you going, that's not a real math problem because you don't have an equal sign. That actually is the gospel, is it not? Love is greater than knowledge, plus sacrifice is greater than freedom, equals the gospel. That is what the gospel is. That's exactly what Jesus does for us. Look at that. Romans 5, 6 says, for while we were still weak, we're the weak ones, right? We can't save ourselves. For while we're still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He knows all about us, right? He knows all about us. Is that in John? He wouldn't entrust himself to men because he knows what's in a man. He knows what's in. He knows our weakness. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But Christ shows his love for us, not his knowledge about what wretched, rebellious sinners we are. He says, I'm going to show you my love. I know what you are, but I'm going to show you my love. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. He was totally free to stay in heaven. I'm going to leave those people down there. I don't want to mess with them anymore. I do all this grace to them, and they tread all over me. I'm going Noah's Ark 2.0. Because he did that once, right? He's like, look at the wickedness on earth. I'm flooding this thing. But he didn't do that, did he? He said, I'm not going Noah's Ark 2.0. I'm going to go down and take that sin. I'm going to take that wrath onto myself. I'm going to sacrifice myself because I love them, and I want to bring them true freedom. That is the gospel. We come to Christ because, not because of his knowledge, but because of his love. And we come to Christ not because he exercises freedom, but he freely sacrificed for us. That is the gospel. That is how we come to him. And so love is greater than knowledge, plus sacrifice is greater than freedom. It is the gospel, and it makes an amazing gospel community. It makes an amazing gospel community. I don't know if you've been around them when you go someplace and you're like, God is here. If you've been those places, there's a place we visited two times now with my family in eastern Oregon called the Crystal Peaks Youth Ranch. I don't know if I've talked about it before. You go to this place and you can tell God is there. Basically, it's his husband and wife. She's been on the radio. She's written books. Kim Meter, Troy and Kim Meter are their names. But they started this horse ranch first as an animal rescue, and then they, they, they serve abused, neglected kids. And what they figured out was, uh, almost on accident, that he was a youth pastor. And they had this girl, I forget, did she, her parents die or she was greatly abused? She just quit talking. Like he was in their youth group for two years. She never spoke. Not that she couldn't speak. She didn't speak because of this trauma. So they were ministering to her, and they had her come over, and then the lady had just gotten these two rescue, broke-down horses that were abused, and she brought them onto their ranch, and so she's working with this girl that won't talk, and she's getting these horses going, and she said, I had to go in the house and answer the phone. And she looks out the window, and she sees the girl in this most animated conversation with the horse. She hasn't talked for two years. I think it was two, maybe it was more. And she's talking, and they were just like, light bulb. So they figured out that when you pair abused horses with abused people, something happens. 
I don't even know what. I don't know what happens. They understand. And they tell the story of these horses, and I'm horrified. They're like, yeah, this one was shot. This one came to us with a chest open. And I'm like, don't tell me the story. I can't even hear it. And that's not even telling the kid's story. So they operate this place completely free. They charge nobody anything. And they've got, I don't know, 25 horses or something. And they just schedule. And they put kids with horses. And they love them. And they paint the horses. And they climb all over them. And there's healing that happens. They pray. And it's like, we will do anything to serve all of this. It's just, it's beautiful. Ooh, what am I doing to myself today? So, I think we've got some of that. I've seen people make sacrifices. Some of you are sacrificed right now. There's people downstairs sacrificing for kids. There's people this week that are going to be sacrificing for our youth and serving in Awana. There's people that come in here and clean things and nobody sees. There's some of you that sacrifice for neighbors and you bring them food. Nobody knows. You mow their lawn. Nobody knows. You just do it. And it just makes this beautiful gospel community where Jesus is exalted and people come in the door and go, whew, what's happening there? Versus everyone's looking out for themselves. Everyone knows more than the other one. Everyone makes sure their needs are met. There's no Jesus in that community. But when we come and we're going, I'm concerned about you and I'm concerned about you and I would never go to that place again if I knew it hurt you. And there's this, and your needs get met. And so I think we have it and I want us to excel still more. If you know of something that harms somebody, you say, I'll lay my right down. If you know of if my, my action hurts you, I'll just stop because we want the gospel of Jesus to change our life, but also to change the person next to you's life and to bleed out of this community. And people go, there's gospel there. There's something there. I can't find it at work, and I can't find it at school, but I found it among Jesus' people. Let's just make that the prayer of our heart. And ask God to reveal, is there an action? Is there a behavior? Is there a place that I need to stop going or change to serve another? And just that we would be responsive to each other.